The Brewers Association and Craft Beer Radio present Savor 2015, an American craft beer and food experience from Washington, D.C. This salon was from Friday, June 5th. A History of Wood-Aged Beer, presented by Peter Buchart, New Belgium Brewing Company. Welcome. Welcome, everyone, first to Savor, an American craft beer and food experience, and more specifically to the salons, which, uh, if you haven't been before, one of the real special places at Savor. Not only do you get to taste amazing beers that are not available on the floor and learn from amazing people, uh, but you get to, to share a little bit more of a convivial atmosphere, get to interact with the brewers a little more closely. Um, today, we have a wonderful presentation on uh, wood aging from Peter Buchart of New Belgium. Um, Peter is literally writing the book on wood aging. Uh, it will be out in 2016, so he's going to talk a little bit about that journey. A couple of housekeeping notes. Um, he's not going to be specifically referring to the, these beers at, at times throughout um, and more generally talking about it, so feel free to drink when the beer is put in front of you. Um, Secondly, this is being recorded for craftbeerradio.com. So if you do have a question, and uh, Peter said it was great to ask questions throughout, um, wait till you get a mic so that the people who aren't as lucky as you and weren't here and are listening to it later um, can hear what your great question was um, and hear Peter's response. Uh, without further ado, I'll, I'll turn it over to Peter. This one, oh, it is working. The salons are really the funnest uh, things for me to do on a because I have to go down to the booth and then we serve La Folie and Slow Right, and it's going to be a La Folie is wood aged and uh, Slow Right is dry hopped and blah blah blah. And uh, two minutes later, La Folie. And, uh, the salons I've, I've done multiple ones on different subjects. Last year was a fun one, was uh, about poems and beer, and so we had made three beers uh, that related to poems, where the poem was an inspiration. Mine was in Flemish, so nobody understood it anyway, so it was pretty easy for me to get over it. So uh, I'm writing a book with Dick Cantwell, formerly with uh, Elysian, around uh, wood-aged beer. I think those people will need some beer there. <laughs> Um, why a book on beer and wood? And for me, kind of by accident, I stumbled up in a, in a Belgian brewery, worked for 10 years in Rodenbach, where we were wood aging all our beer. Um, and uh, then in 96, I uh, moved to New Belgium in Fort Collins, Colorado. And two years later, we started buying some wooden barrels, and those wooden barrels became the beer that you uh, are drinking right now. So for me, I studied as a brewer uh, in Belgium, Germany, England. You still have um, brewing engineer studies. Um, and I completely stumbled upon in, in wood. And so the BA was looking for some authors around uh, a beer book around wood. And so they asked me already a few times, and I'm writing a book, I'm not a, I, I'm a brewer, I, that's what I do. But uh, it was kind of Dick and Christy who convinced me to do so, and what really convinced me was the travel that you could do. Because this is about 
wood and beer, what's still happening, cooperages. So we went to Scotland and saw some recuperage from uh, uh, bourbon barrels that arrive in uh, Scotland, some sherry barrels also, and we saw them in a uh, Speyside um, cooperage. Um, somewhere last summer we went to France, we visited three cooperages, we were going to visit uh, four wine cooperages, but where they also made large wooden barrels. Um, and after three, we kind of had enough of it, and so we went drinking wine in the Bordeaux area at that point, and we went south to um, one of the biggest, probably the biggest barrel that's still existing in the world, 10,000 hectoliters, so really beautiful. My kids were there also, and they were even emotional about it, so it was kind of real fun to see. Um, we've been, uh, we've doing a, done a trip from um, Michigan, uh, sorry, from Kentucky to Mich Michigan, because we hadn't really seen anything about bourbon barrel cooperage, and it was quite different. Um, and then Michigan, uh, we went to some brewers colleagues uh, that are doing interesting stuff with barrels, and so. But along the way, um, very early on in the book, we started looking at uh, how are we going to divvy this up, this book, and so one piece was history. And it's been for me one of the most fascinating things and as I, I probably can do a whole salon about history and so that's how this came to be. So maybe first for this beer that we're drinking we're starting a calibration on uh, La Folie. So La Folie is our, um, it's kind of French for you're kind of nuts but you're still fun to hang out with. Um, it is a wood-aged beer. We age it on relatively large wooden fooders. I'm going to use that term again. So every time I st stop talking about a barrel, could be up to 500 liter. A fooder is in the 10 hectoliter to... In, in New Belgium, we have up to 230 hectoliter, but uh, in Rodenbach, I had 450 hectoliter. So they, they would probably just fit in here. Um, diameter around bit more uh, from the first table there to that table, maybe a bit wider than that, so real beautiful footage. Um, so, La Folie wood aged 100%, so we're gonna get another beer, the last beer I think that we're gonna have tonight is then a version that we do, who's maybe partly inspired by the book or the stuff that we found in history. Okay, I'm gonna have to use my notes from here on easy part. So if you think about what our brewers doing um, uh, currently with beer and wood, there's quite a bit of things still happening. Uh, I'm going to use this to refer a little bit to history, but I'm going to go on three different history topics uh, a bit later on. So first of all, wood, why is wood used? Simple thing is heating the kettle. There's still a few brewers who are doing that. There's one in Germany that I know, but it is a heat source. As you do it at home, maybe if you have a wood fireplace or if you're out camping, we use wood. But to bring the whole kettle to boil was really, that was, there were some coals that came in relatively late in history, but before that, it was all wood that was used. From a flavor stance, Probably not that interesting, so I'm not going to go much further about that. Second, um, I would, second is a kind of clarification is still in use for wood. So it's not about the flavor again, it's just about to clear the beer. 
And the interesting part, if you go on a wooden barrel, there's a tannin, tannin extraction and clarification of beer is polyphenols and protein. So now we kind of shift that balance because we bring in more polyphenols or tannins and so the proteins are going to drop out. And so we will have a pretty clear beer if you go to wood. There's a crazy thing, when I moved to the US in 96, we have a, a Budweiser plant in Fort Collins also, and they are still using beech wood. And that beech wood is really, we didn't see that anymore in our brewing textbooks in, in England, uh, in Belgium. Um, but the reason why they use beech, which from the 1870s to the 1920s was to during the clarification process, or sorry, during the maturation process of a lager, they were using horizontal tanks, and so the yeast on the bottom of the tank was quite packed. And so the yeast started to autolyze on the bottom of those tanks, and cylindroconicals, it's even worse. And now as brewers, we're all using cylindroconicals, but luckily we can pull some yeast off from time to time. It's hard to do those in those horizontal vessels. If you open the bottom valve, you get maybe a little bit of the yeast, but you pretty quick get the beer. So you can't really separate the yeast. So the technology in the 1870s was to use, there were different woods, but beech woods was one of the most popular ones, to use strips of that so that when the yeast settles down, it kind of layers itself and there's some space in between so that that yeast that has settled down still can touch the beer and deal with the sulfurs and diacetyl who are still present and the re deal why, with the reason why we want to age those beers. So an ancient technology that is fascinating enough, still used by one of the biggest brewers in the world. And this is where marketing sometimes goes south. If you get that on the label, fight it as a brewer. There's no need for it anymore to use it, but it is on their label, so they really have to use it. So, clarification, really beautiful history. If you look in the 1920s in Berlin, I spent some time in the VLB uh, library in Berlin, and in the 19, from shortly after the war, 1918 to 1920, you see them starting to look into aluminum, and instead of aluminum, I think you say it, sorry, my stresses are sometimes wrong. Eh? Um, so those strips of beechwood are like a foot long and a couple of inches wide, and they started making them in aluminum, al aluminum uh, and bend them a little bit so that when they stacked them in the lager tank, they basically had the same process, and they had a material that was cleanable. Budweiser goes through a very hard job to try to sanitize, basically by boiling them and caustic those strips of wood again. And aluminum was kind of the hot new thing for a little while, but it, it, it all faded except for Budweiser. So, um, I made a separate category. I had six different areas that I wanted to touch on. Wood, of course, was used to make vessels. And when we were looking in... Uh, in Scotland to some of the distilleries, but also uh, we went to Woodward, Woodford Reserve in uh, Bourbon country, close to Lexington, Kentucky. Um, there, there's really crazy woods that you don't really see that much used anymore in beer making. There's one coming in in um, Anchorage Brewing in Alaska, who's made of pine, uh, a complete new fooder that he makes of pine. Those are really hard because they have so much flavor. They are pretty good watertight woods, but you 
get so much flavor, so you have to go through a cleaning process or an extraction process before you're going to use them. And so the, the woods that we have found in, um, in Bourbon and in, um, um, in Scotland were pine, redwood, Douglas fir, and uh, large, of all things. So really, this is just in case of the bourbon, it's their fermentation vessels where you see it bubbling with the, the fatty drops from the corn on top in the bourbon. It's really kind of a weird fermentation for us brewers. It doesn't foam because of the fat from the corn. Um, but those vessels are pretty good. They're relatively easy to clean. They're not sterile, but it's bourbon. You don't need to be sterile. And maybe it gives you some lactobacilli that is gonna actually enhance the flavor from the bourbon that you're gonna distill. We had a really funny discovery. If you ever go to Brussels, in the main square in Brussels, um, there's the Brewer's House, and there's a little museum. So it's still an active Gilder House. It's the only active Gilder House uh, in the world still. And if you are ever in Brussels, go in the basement. It's a very short visit to the museum. I think you have to pay like a couple of euros. You get a free beer for it, and you get to walk around some old equipment that they have. And one of the vessels that they have is a cool ship. I don't know if you're familiar with a cool ship. Jason from Alagage is talking next door, and they have a cool ship. So cool ship is a rectangular bag who, who's not that high, 30 centimeters or a foot high roughly. And you pump up the beer there. And the reason why brewers were doing it, because of the shallow height, those, the troop from the kettle is going to precipitate. The hops are going to precipitate. And it doesn't take that long because the height is not that high. And so cool ships in the Lambic area and the way um, Allagash is using them is, is also in, used in Lambic area where they actually let it sit overnight and hope that their microbiology is going to come in overnight that's going to take off with the fermentation. But there is a wooden cool ship there in that museum. Really. A rectangular back, try to keep that, keep that water tight. Maybe it was lined, but that was the craziest vessel I saw. Hey, mash tons, the kettle, of course, was never, although there were kettles where they used to use hot stones that they put in to bring it to boil, and those could be in wood. But otherwise, um, all other vessels in a brewery were made of wood. So, very interesting stuff, and then the most beautiful, um, I need to mention also um, Dogfish Head has some um, a tropical wood from uh, South America, Palo Alto, um, that they use, who's a, quite a flavor neutral wood, a very hard wood that they store um, beer in. Um, and uh, I think they actually serve the beer under the name of the Palo Alto, but I'm not 100% sure. There was one on our, on our trip that we did in southern France. It's actually very close to the French border. There's a, a flavored wine called beer, B-Y-R-R-H. And there we went through a cellar of roughly 70, 80 barrels, oak barrels that were 2,500 hectoliters large, so they would just fit in this room as wide and, and at the end of that cellar is a 10 
8,000 hectoliter, so four times as big as this room, footer standing there with wood being 15 centimeter thick. Imagine that. So the trees are, the planks are 10 meters long. The diameter of the footer is 12 meters in diameter. And, but imagine you can maybe get one stave out of a tree. Really, this was fantastic to see. So vessels in general, in this case the flavored wine, they weren't really uh, very interested in getting the flavor from it. What they were after was having a large vessel where they could circulate the wine out where, over when they uh, were extracting the spices. And that was all. They could go bigger than that, but I think they um, got to a physical restriction of what wood can do in size. Okay, so those are the boring wines. Number four, uh, maybe still somewhat boring, I think, but really in, from a history stance, beer was always served in wood. And there's a few places in Germany where you still can get it, and maybe in some other places, like, uh, uh, so in Germany you have an, uh, an alt brewery in downtown, in Dortmund, and then there's a few beer kellers in uh, Munich that still bring the wooden barrel up and who are gonna tap it and serve the beer from there. That beer is actually carbonated, so it is under pressure. Those are very thick wood uh, barrels, although they're pretty small. But the thing about those barrels is that they're pitched or lined. And pitch has a huge history also in the US. I found a lot of um, stuff on pitch from 1640 to actually 1940, sorry, 1660, I think, or to until 1940, the US, especially when it was a, colon a, co a colony from the Britain, um, the country was used to make pitch. And as the trees got depleted in um, New England, they went south and they actually ended up in up until Texas. And still in 1940, there were still two pitch um, fabrications that were happening in uh, Georgia and in Florida. Pitch. It's an extract from longwood pine that they make by heating the pines. The harsh is coming out, and then they can distill it and make rosin or turpin, uh, or they can use the pitch. And the pitch is used to make barrels watertight, but also to make ships watertight. And England had depleted in the 18, sorry, in um, around 1750, had depleted all their wood reserves, so they had to get it from Norway, but then they got in a war with Norway, so the US became the big thing. And so the pitch, really a huge part of this country's history. I found a beautiful book from, uh, published in North Carolina. Um, it's, it's related to slavery also. It's really, for me, it was fascinating because I don't know much about the US history as such, but I found so much about um, the use of wood barrels in the US. Really good books. You can find them here in, uh, what is it, the Library of Congress also. So, um, and then five and six, of course, extraction and souring. And so uh, here, this is a beer that we're, uh, that I brewed with um, Spike from uh, Terrapin uh, in uh, Athens, Georgia. And we were looking, we had made a beer with um, Spanish cedar in New Belgium. Just Spanish cedar spirals added to the fermentation. And no wood vessels. We wanted to do something similar, but we couldn't find the Spanish cedar anymore. Spike came up with sassafras wood. 
I didn't grow up here, so um, how do you call that? Root beer is kind of like marmite for the English. Uh, um, if you didn't grow up it, uh, you really don't want to drink this. And I was like, sassafras root, really? So the day that we were brewing, I, the first thing that I did when I arrived in the brewery, I grabbed some wood, I put it in one of their pilsner and put it in a steer plate in the lab and tasted it four hours later. And it's, if you make root beer, it's coming from the root, of course, of the sassafras. This is from the, the tree part. And so it's way less flavorful. And so I was pretty happy that it didn't really impact that much uh, of the flavor. It's kind of a crazy beer. This is, we call it black is the new wit. Uh, we made a wit beer, but we made it black. Wit in Flemish means white. Um, it is black, but we wanted to make it taste like a wit beer. So we used coriander, orange peel, and we subdued a whole darker flavor from the beer. It's now um, six months old, so we get some aging in it. So maybe it goes a little bit away from... Uh, um, the original wit beer that we had. Okay, so that is an extraction beer, of course. So this is currently happening in the U.S. a lot. People are using a lot of wood to flavor beer. And historically, I haven't really found so much about that. It, wood was used for vessels um, and probably impart flavor because of this. But... To throw wood in a fermenter to get the flavor from is kind of a more something what the craft brewers are doing. They, if it's crazy enough, we'll, we'll do it anyway. So this is one of those. Uh, but um, what, what does the extraction do? It can give tannin, it can give flavor depending on the wood. Uh, there's really very beautiful flavors. There's also kind of a different type of extraction and it's smoked malt uh, where you burn the wood and you let the... Um, the, the smoke go through the grain at the kiln. And so it really coats the, the grain kernel, and then in the mash tun, you're going to extract that again. And that is something that is historically has been used a lot and is still in use in Bamberg in Germany. If you use, uh, drink something from Bamberg, it's typically going to be relatively heavily smoked. So this is kind of extraction methods within wood. Um, then... I think tonight you're going to find a lot of beers that use flavors from previous fillings. And on this trip, uh, looking to this book, we have found, of course, bourbon barrels. There's plenty of bourbon barrels, and I would assume we're going to have some bourbon barrel aged beer here. We can have the whiskey still or the bourbon present partly in the barrel when we fill it. We're typically not going to clean that, and we're going to use this as a flavoring for our beer. Some pretty interesting beers we found on our trips. One was in uh, Louisville uh, against the grain brewing. And they had used a bourbon barrel that was used for a soy fermentation and then used for a beer. They had, the beer was called Umami. They only had used one of the six barrels was from the soy um, fermentation uh, so because it was very salty. And they had to cut it with some other beers that were not soured, but um, really beautiful how they had blended. They had used some mushrooms in it. It was a beer. They told us afterwards. We were drinking it before they came in. And we're like, wow, this is a good beer. Well, what is this? But soy barrels. Then another one that was very interesting. We found a maple barrel in, um, in uh, New Holland. Um, 
in Michigan, but uh, we got a hot sauce Mexican lager beer in um, uh, in come on in Founders Brewing. That was really interesting. They said the, when the, the beer went on, it was a very it was a corn corn lager, so really a Mexican lager that they had made very easy beer in a hot sauce. And they said initially it was very bad. When we were there four months old, it was actually very nice. But from dimensions, and I think if you write a book about wood and beer, this is part of what the thing that we want to give. We want to give inspiration to people also about how this can, where we can go with this. And so to find then those barrels in a mine, in a limestone mine, or sorry, gypsum mine that they have there in, in Michigan, it was hilarious. Uh, this was one of the moments that was so much fun to, for us to detect. Um, and then last, of course, um, is souring. Uh, souring, why do we use wood? It's mainly because of the porosity of the wood. And currently, wine is experimenting with concrete tanks because there's some oxygen that can go through the vessel wall, and that oxygen will supply some nutrients to the uh, microorganisms that are present in the barrel. And that will add to the complexity of the sourness of the barrel. So those are really, from a historical point, if you look to breweries, I will talk a little bit about Norway, um, but those breweries were so small, everything was on wood. If you look to the ratio of breweries per people in a town, it was a brewery per 20 people, and everything was on wood, so it probably soured pretty fast. They didn't know about yeast. So, but they drank it, hopefully, before it got too sour. And historically, there has been porter used to be a, a blend of a sour beer and a dark beer. But that kind of has faded over time now and um, really kind of with Guinness. Guinness uses still some lactic acid that they make through fermentation. But that's kind of a reminiscent. They don't use their wooden barrels anymore for that. So those are some elements around um, how can you use wood and beer. And so I went through this. Um, because I'm going to reflect a little bit on uh, this now in the history part, because the history has been, for me, one of the most fascinating parts so far about writing this book. There's three things I want to touch on, and I kind of have... Maybe I should start um, early in the history, um, chronologically. Um, where barrels really came from, or maybe how they got made, is kind of a very hard one. Nobody really knows because there's no written documentation um, about it. It probably, uh, there are some uh, myths, especially in Cooperage environments, that came with a hollow log that was emptied. And you still see that. I've, my sister lives in Africa, so you see them making the manioc in a hollow log. And if that dries out, it starts to split, so they probably had to tie something around it to keep it together. Okay. And then if you want to hold something, maybe you could put a hide or something on it on top, so that you had a... And there is a drum in New York that uh, is from Egypt that is actually this, kind of a hollow log that split that they had to tie up and then put some um, hides on it. But they used it as a drum, not as a barrel, not as something that was going to contain liquid. Whatever, I don't know. I'm not that old um, for me to tell how it has happened. What seems to, if you look to the written history, um, there is the first mentioning of a barrel is 900 before Christ. 
when um, <laughs> There's a, a Greek writer who was traveling in Babylonia, and he said that they were floating down palm wood barrels with wine from Armenia down the Tigris and the Euphrates. But this is only one mentioning. So is this true? Is this something um, we don't know? But that is kind of the first thing about the barrel. But then if you look to the Mediterranean, they went to amphoras. They went to ceramic vessels that were easy stackable in boats. And the crazy point that you have on the bottom of a, an amphora was that because you could stack them, the ship was shaped like this. So you stack those amphoras in there. It's only when the Romans really start to go north that they start to talk about barrels. And it's really the Celts um, and the people that were inhabiting France, um, a little bit Spain, Belgium, England, Germany at that point, who were using barrels. And the barrels, if those people would come back, they were already very look-alike. It's really funny that barrels haven't really much evolved over time. And we're talking here over 2,000 years. And they probably could work on those barrels, they could make those barrels, and they would recognize our barrels that we have right away. There's a bunch of stuff that has happened through history that has maybe enhanced the calibration of the volume, blah, 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 those type of things. But really, on the technology to make a barrel, there's not much change. And if you look to a barrel, it's very close to how a ship is made. If you think about a ship, it started in the same way. It started with hollow-out kayaks that they can fill. I was picked up in Mozambique in a hollow-out kayak when I got stuck in a mangrove forest. It was kind of one of those experiences. Um, but yeah, they can be pretty big. It, it, it's the trunk who's the limit on how big those boats are going to be. And so those were boats that have been around for a long time. But then they started using the same bending techniques for the front part of a ship. And then they were attaching the side planks and they were using pitch in between those planks or cotton ropes. We have a whole chapter of, on maintenance and I still talk about cotton ropes, how to repair barrel in between stave leaks with cotton. So the same stuff is still used on shipmaking. So this brings me maybe to point number two. Oh, maybe I should uh, first talk about uh, our third beer we get here. This is uh, the Transatlantic Creek. So uh, I almost forgot to keep the mic. Transatlantic Creek is a, a wood-aged beer that comes from Belgium, shipped to Fort Collins, Colorado, and it's a cherry lambic that we get. I mentioned lambics already when I was talking about the cool ships that we have. So it's a beer that is spontaneous fermented. Um, they're going to leave it overnight on the cool ship. Hopefully it's going to be cold enough after that night because they brew in winter. And then they put it in wooden barrels and let it ferment with whatever is present. Pretty much a year later, they add the cherries. It goes through re-fermentation, so this is really, the beer we get is a very heavy um, cherry lambic. It's 400 grams per liter of cherry, so 40% of the liquid is cherries that they ship over. And then we brew a beer in New Belgium that is going to be blended with it, and so it's a two breweries 
beard, the transatlantic click. So I brought this one on because uh, we had the black is the new wit. So we went away from sour and we're going to go back to sour. And so it's a stepping stone in that direction again. So last month I went to Sweden, uh, to Stockholm, and it wasn't related to the book, but somebody at work said, you need to go to the Vasa Museum. And the Vasa is a boat that sunk in 1626. It had been built. It was, Sweden was a huge um, seafaring nation at that point. It was a pretty strong nation. They had made one of their first boats with two levels of cannons. And so it left from its dock where it had been built, and five kilometers later, in the same bay, it sank. Because there was a little bit too much wind, water came in the cannon holes, the lower cannon holes, it started to collect way too much water, and it sank. This was in brackish water, it's not seawater, and so the whole ship is completely preserved. It was fantastic for me to see. Because you're thinking, I was writing at that point the maintenance chapter, and they have all the tools there that they found. They had a barrel that they had opened. They didn't know what was in it, and there were, it was a barrel filled with hats. They had individual barrels, little barrels, from the crew with their personal items, kind of your toiletry or something. So much stuff, so many barrels that went into a ship like that, and also just the sheer ship building that you could see. The whole, some of the masts were still whole. So ever, if you ever get to go to Stockholm, um, the Vasa Museum, it's in downtown. It's, it's the biggest um, error Sweden ever made, they say, but um, it's so beautiful. Why do I bring that up? Uh, for me, barrels were, the containers of that time. There's nobody writing a book currently about containers and container ships and containers on trains and containers on trucks. Containers are containers, we know. They're kind of square, they're kind of boring, you know, they're handy, you can stuff them with stuff. Barrels were exactly that. They used barrels for everything. Everything. They going to go through some numbers a little bit later on, but it is amazing. Think about it. They probably stored it in barrels. I found a book that was writing about nail barrels, chicken barrels, pork barrels, um, uh, oil barrels, whale oil barrels, um, whatever, hats. I hadn't found hats yet before I went to Sweden. They had a whole barrel made to store hats for the crew. But that was their stuff their thing where they stored stuff in. And it's kind of gone away. And now we go to visit the bourbon manufacturing and bourbon distillery and we look at all the barrels in the barrel house. But it's like the most common thing for 2,000 years at a time. There's nothing special about it. And it is so special also. It's kind of lost history. History is full of those things. And we, we forget. So the reverse for me, if I, I do literature research, Nobody talks about barrels, or they talk about a cursory. Oh, the trucks were that wide because, why would we say why, uh, how wide they are? It's because the container is that wide. It's a standardization that happens. 
you think uh, 1626, the pilgrims landed in 1620 here, and they had a very detailed description on what barrels that they had on the ship. Because at that time, we have good, pretty good record corp, um, keeping. If it didn't get burned down over time, um, it's all still present. And you kind of can see that uh, one of the reasons that the, um, the ship, is it the pilgrim, the ship that left? Uh, it left a little bit later in England because they didn't have a cooper. You can't leave with a ship if you don't have a cooper. Uh -huh. The cooper needs to repair the ship. He needs to pull down the barrels that are filled with water when they are empty so that they get some more place to sleep. Cooper is very essential. There's fascinating stuff also in early U.S. where they were, there were so many distilleries in, um, in the Alagash area um, and up north from here. And why were those distilleries? Because they were distilling so much, not because they were drinking it, they shipped there's uh, records from a harbor, I forget the harbor now, 18, 18 ships that left with distilled with 18,000 barrels to Africa to exchange for slaves. So it's completely our history. And there was a whole triangle on how those barrels and, and, and stuff got trafficked around, but barrels were the thing. If you have a ship with 200 people on board, you need a lot of water if you're going to be on, on the sea for over a week. Or if you look to Captain Cook, when he crossed the Pacifics, he was typically gone for two months at a time. How much pork barrels, how much fish barrels, how much lemon barrels, because of scurvy, um, uh, do you have? We have those stupid containers now, as they used to have the stupid barrels. But this was for me like so striking. It brings me to a last point that I want to fill in on history, and I don't know how I'm doing on time. Oh, I have a bit more time than I thought. So I'm going to go reverse in time here, because if you look currently where we're at, there's really no barrels made anymore. Because we, how many barrels do you have at home? Maybe plastic boxes? guys are boring. We're, so now the input in the world on barrels is around, on an annual basis, 2 million barrels that go into bourbon. And there's a few hundred thousand barrels that go into wine. And then there's slightly over a thousand bigger footers that are made typically for wine aging, uh, some other product. But that's it. Uh, so let's say 2.5 million barrels a year that are made. The best count, oh, maybe I need to take that a step back because in history when um, there was a, here in Washington, there was a huge lobby in 1935 from uh, the Cooperage Union because they were losing everything. People started using metal barrels for oil or or whatever, for beer, actually, they went to steel and aluminum, and um, they didn't need wood anymore. So the cooperage uh, unions really were under a threat as such, and so they got a law passed here in the US, US in 1935 that said, oh, bourbon from now on 
has to use new American white oak barrels. So protecting forestry, protecting um, uh, the cooperage unit because they were pretty much running out of uh, a job otherwise. And so now if you go to the bourbon, they're like, oh yeah, we use new white oak um, American barrels. And it's kind of by an act of Congress that they were forced to do so. There's an interesting element also, those barrels for bourbon, those two million, so the largest input that we have in the world right now, they're all burned on the inside, really burned, charred. If you see it, if you go to Cooperage, uh, we went to one in Lexington, uh, sorry, in uh, Louisville, Kentucky, 2,000 barrels a day that they make. They have a fully automated line where they burn the barrels on the inside. Put them out with water, they come out, they cool them a little bit, put a head in, and it's a very huge mechanical uh, mechanization that they have. Those peoples are not, uh, people that are working there are not cooperated anymore. The only area where you really see the cooper tools is they test the barrels. At that point, sometimes they leak on the staves or they leave on the head. And at that point, you need a guy who can deal with those type of leaks. And there you see a hammer, you see the wood driver, so you see the real cooperage tools. You don't see the knives anymore where you scrape the staves with because that's all mechanical right now. So bourbon barrel, largest input chart. I've had some discussions with some of the distillers in bourbon, why do you char? And they say it's purposefully uh, for flavor because some of the um, the active carbon that you form is going to strip some of the flavor of uh, the bourbon. Makes sense? If you look through history, when charring was used, it was mostly because it was a barrel that contained fish, so and you wanted to store beer in it next, so you probably want to get the fish out of it, so burning was a good solution to do so. So it was also a very practical approach. I don't know, I don't make any judgment, but you kind of see all those techniques going in different directions, but all from a very practical stance. A barrel, everybody at home probably could repair a barrel at that point. So yeah, they had a spare barrel and they needed to store something else. Well, we're gonna burn it out so that we get rid of the flavor. I don't know if that's the true thing for bourbon as such, but it is still, it is important for us currently because it's one of the big barrel inputs in the world. But so, I was talking about 2.5 million barrels worldwide currently made. The US in 1906, and I'm gonna have to go to my notes, made, where the heck is this? 65 million slack barrels. Slack barrels are not watertight barrels that can be used for chicken, apples, nails, whatever. Uh, call it, and that's what you can use them for as long as it's solid. Then the watertight barrels were 18 million barrels, and only 10% roughly from that went to um, beer at that time. So this was really the peak of cooperage. Why was that the peak of cooperage? Because in, 19, in 1859, they found oil in Pennsylvania. And the first year they found 2,000 barrels of oil. The next year, in 1860, they pumped half a million. In 1906, they pumped 18 million 
barrels of oil already. So you can see what happens there. There was no container. We suddenly have a new resource that can maybe replace whale oil because whale oil was still used for lightning. Uh, but kerosene was almost better and what became way more avail available. So suddenly all those barrels in the U.S. were sucked to Pennsylvania to get the oil. Because how do we ship oil? Oh, they, they put in a pipeline from four miles. Can you imagine a pipe that you use for four miles for to send your oil through? That's fantastic. How do you maintain that? How do you construct that? Incredible. And then they started using metal tanks. Metal tanks, we see a lot of that in the news right now with um, some train cars for oil. Um, So, in the finding of one resource had such a huge impact on our forests, on our cooperage, and me mechanization in cooperage came in 1811. It is the first patent of use of a machine in cooperage. But suddenly, when the oil comes out, the, there's a recent published book actually about cooperage machinery, um, automated machinery about cooperage, still now, that I think it was published in 18. In 1984, um, but so you had such an amount of barrels that needed to be made. They even put. I had a picture that I found from a footer, one of those large barrels that they put on rail cars, four in a row on one rail car, just to ship oil. We had to ship oil. We had to get it to the refinery. So this really disrupted the whole cooperage making. And if you go a little bit before 1859, what do you see? You see the single wood, uh, single-person cooperage shops. There's a, a New York Times article from, I think, four years before 1859, uh, talking about the cooperage shop that burned down. And it was a big one. It was, um, if I remember right, 80 feet on 25 feet. So they were all very small places, and they made all the needs that you had for, from your bucket, or if you wanted to make butter, I forget the name in English, it's a corn, we call it in uh, uh, um, But all those stuff, all this was made by coopers. And so every village had to have a few coopers to make all this stuff that was needed for a household. So for me, uh, I, I didn't know that about the US on the cooperage side. I knew a little bit more on, on the European side, but that it all really had crushed everything on the cooperage side, and that it really translated in technology changes that brewers had to go to different types of vessels because wood was not available anymore. Okay, so I have uh, one last thing that I wanted to cover, and it was a fantastic book that I found. How much time do I have? found a great book, I forget it was, uh, I think it's in 1960 published by Alt Norland in uh, Norway, and it's a linguistic study. Linguistic study about brewing in Norway in the last two centuries, uh, it goes back to the 1700s. And it's really fascinating if you see what brewing is. It's not that complicated. You 
mill your grain. A farmer typically has a mill because he makes bread. So he used that same mill for it. Um, he mashes it in. Then there was a high technological thing. He had to separate the husk and the germinating plant part from the rest of the liquid. And I'm going to go a little bit deeper because there's some interesting things in that. And then you have to boil it. And boiling, that was the only part where you couldn't use a wooden vessel. So they had one copper vessel, typically a vessel, it wasn't that big, um, where they were brewing in wintertime mostly, and especially around Christmas, New Year was when they were brewing the most. And then aging or fermentation was all done in wooden barrels, of course. It's fantastic to see there how simple the tools are that they were using. And one of them was kind of an aha moment on, it, it was a mash tun. And so you have the staves on a barrel. And so three of the staves were roughly um, a foot and a half longer because it's a mash vessel. You probably want it a little bit higher so they can get a vessel around it, uh, collect it. And so out of the staves, they just had made legs where that vessel could stand on. Then how do you separate the solids from your word from uh, the liquid, the, the word itself? It was pretty easy. The bottom layer was typically alder wood that they cleaved, very small branches that they cleaved, so they formed a rough layer. And on that, they used um, willow twigs, to crack off, easy to cut up, you form your layer. On top of that, you put some hay, because that's pretty fine. That probably will keep the husk and the, um, I, the plants, the, the leaf part of the barley intact. And you go over that. Why am I saying that? Why is this relevant? The alder was used to make a darker beer, because alder gives you an extraction of color. So they had a dark beer that they made through lautering, a differentiation through lautering. The whole technology in Norway for almost two centuries didn't really move because it was a very thin populated agricultural country. And so you see them using slightly different versions depending on where in the country they are. And they probably have mutual uh, influences. And you see sometimes that when fjords are reaching each other, that linguistic and brewing techniques are suddenly similar in two different fjords. But this is brewing. This is the technology from that. Uh, this is the barrels that they were using. They were all very limited in the range of what, um, in variation that they were making or using. And to me, there was such a big revelation. Um, uh, okay, I'm writing about wood and beer. I don't think somebody a century and a half ago would probably write about that because it was what, what it was. That's what people are using. Well, maybe now we find some publications about new kettle technology and some patents and some, but if we go back in uh, 100 years from here and we're gonna look to brewing and we're gonna be like, oh, those American craft brewers, they started dry hopping, dry hopping, kettle souring. Those are things we do. 
we don't really write too much about it. And so somebody 100 years from here is going to fall on kettle souring, like, what the heck is that? They sour the kettle, so they add it like lactic maybe, or they, 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 it's so vague. There's so much room for interpretation on what has filled in this history. And so I hope the way we write this book also that we can at least cover and, and try to document maybe the stupid simple things for us nowadays, what we're doing, so that people that uh, read it long time after us are going to find back what happened so that we can be part of history in that. So I can talk for a couple more hours, but this was really what I was planned on. Oh, sorry, I need to talk about the beer still. Okay, so, so this is an interesting... We had the La Folie as the first beer. This is La Folie. This is not La Folie. We call it MBB Love. MBB Love is a single barrel, a single food that we have that we let sour. And we taste, we go around. Sometimes we're like, wow, this one is really nice. And sometimes we kick that up and we send it out as such. In this case, we work together with a, whiskey dis uh, a, a bourbon and whiskey distillery in Denver. So they use for bourbon, technically, legally, they have to be using new American white oak barrels. After the first use, they go to whiskey. This is what happens still nowadays. And now the barrels from bourbon, after they are used, they ship them to Scotland and they get used for whiskey. Oh, and some are going through, when we, just when we were in Founders, 2,500 of those had gone through a beer aging in a, lime, in a gypsum cave in Michigan. And after that, they send them to Scotland. So that hot sauce barrel is in Scotland right now. I want to find that. Uh, but, uh, so here we do kind of something similar. So they use the for whiskey. After whiskey, they make fruit whiskey from it. And in this case, it's the cherry whiskey that they made from it. The cherry whiskey gets emptied in the morning, and we bring it over to Fort Collins. And we put our, an MBB Love in there, beer from one barrel, and we're going to just leave it in there for two months. And after that, we empty the barrel, and we ship it back to Leopold Brothers. And they're going to make another fruited whiskey with it. And then they're going to bring it back. So it's kind of an element of history that is still present history with the scotch, um, or uh, the, the whiskeys that are made in Scotland from used barrels from bourbon. It used to be from sherry that they were making it, but thanks to the 1935 law here made in Washington, now they're using bourbon barrels because there's plenty of them. Cherry barrels are not that plenty anymore. But so we kind of do something similar where we circulate barrels in between distilled to beer, distilled to beer. We don't burn them in between because we love the flavors that come with it and we like to drink the whiskey that's still left over in it. And then we put beer on it and we send it back and they probably do the same, so. Okay. We have time for a question or two, if anyone has any questions for Peter. Thank you. First of all, that was a wonderful presentation, and I learned a ton about the history. Um, something I've always had the perception of between lagers and then ales, particularly sour beers, is the technicality. I always feel like 
bloggers, you have to be very specific, very technical, and there's so much room for error in sour beers. Would you agree with that or not? And if so, why? I would disagree first on the lager side in the sense that maybe you're talking about American light lagers right now, and those beers are very much known. Everybody in this room, if there's a slight defect, will know. So if you have to make Budweiser, it is a damned hard job because your bandwidth on variation is very small because people will recognize it. On the sour beer side, well, if you look to barrels, or in our case, footage, they're like kids. They go where they're going to go. And there's really no way around it. And maybe the next time you fill them with beer, maybe they're going to go in a similar direction. Maybe not. And so typically, Lambic brewers, when I was working at Rodenbach, now us with the La Folie, we typically are going to go around in between our barrels, and because they are all their individual character, we will taste, and we have to blend. To come to a similar product, in the case of La Folie, we give it a vintage, so it's definitely going to be different, but at least it's going to be in a similar direction. And then if you find a barrel that goes off, but it's kind of interesting, well, maybe we're going to make a beer around it. If we find a barrel that's off and ugly, then we're going to dump it and burn it. Yes, Peter. Um, certainly familiar with Rodenbach's rich history, your, your history brewing there. Are there, bringing that to the U.S., were there any particularly unique, particularly unique challenges to making that work? So the question was, uh, are there any particular challenges to bring a process like Rodenbach into the US? Do I frame that right? Um, first of all, I never tried to make a Rodenbach here. I, I went from, Rodenbach was specifically, it was a mixed fermentation already, lactobacilli and um, yeast and some brettanomyces in the main fermentation. La Folie is technically a lager. Because we fermented with the lager yeast, so it should be a lager then. After that, we're going to filter the, lager out, the yeast out, so we typically do relatively warm fermentation, uh, filtration. Um, and then we're going to put this beer on the wood barrels. Rodenbach went from the mixed fermentation into an um, aging on stainless tanks for another four to five weeks around 15c to develop lactic acid if you go in a closed stainless tank you can't really have oxygen so you only can develop lactic and after that part of that beer went on the oak and then for the regular Rodenbach this was blended with this stainless five weeks old beer that was slightly soured and so uh, for the Rodenbach Grand Cru Currently, it's 75% is wood-aged beer, 25% uh, is that stainless beer. When I was there, it was still 100% was one footer, and that's how, what we, it's kind of MBB love. But fundamentally, La Folie starts completely different. I didn't have the culture also from Rodenbach, so I had to start collecting stuff. 
And I collected left and right. I bought some in uh, the American type culture um, collection. Uh, I found some in tap lines. I got some uh, from Belgium or some Belgian beer that I knew that wasn't pasteurized. And so we built our culture. And I think this is also what I describe in the book. How do you get to something like this? And if you still want to start from scratch, you need to take your time. And nowadays, we can buy way more stuff from White Labs and uh, Y East and so on. Uh, there's some souring cultures. But personally, I thought it was uh, when we started it, they didn't sell lactobacilli and pediococci. So we had to get them from wherever we found them. And so tap lines are notorious for lactobacilli. So, and there's pretty good ones in there. It makes the beer pretty bad. As long as it doesn't make diacetyl, bring it on. Yeah. Okay, what do you think, Bart? I think we've used our hour, so okay. thank you, Peter, for this wonderful presentation, and thanks, everyone, for being here. Thank you for listening to this recording from Savor 2015, brought to you by the Brewers Association and Craft Beer Radio. You can find the rest of the salons from Savor 2015, as well as all of the salons from previous years of Savor at craftbeerradio.com slash savor or on craftbeer.com. Craft Beer Radio is a weekly beer podcast that you can listen to on iTunes or from our website at craftbeerradio.com. <laughs>